Good morning, Trinity Park, and happy Palm Sunday. Today, we're concluding our series uh, in the Book of Kings, which we started back in October, looking at the lives and ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And in this series, we've considered what it means to be faithful in a faithless age. By looking at two of Israel's great prophets who lived in an age when Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of the people of God, were unfaithful to the Lord. Today's passage is the conclusion of Elisha's story, but it's not the conclusion of the book of Kings. There's more that happens afterwards. But before we dive into this passage, I want to take a step back and consider what it is that we've been reading these past few months. We're used to thinking of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as history, and that's what they are. But in the Hebrew Bible, so the Bible originally written in Hebrew, these books are part of a collection called the Prophets. Why is that? Is it because they have stories of prophets? Yes, to some extent. But the deeper reason is because these books speak a prophetic word to you. Beyond just giving you the bare history of Israel, there's a theological message in these books that speaks to you today. As Corey said in his first sermon in this series, the author of Kings is living in exile in Babylon when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have already been destroyed and lost. The promise of God that Israel would dwell in a land flowing with milk and honey, that's a distant memory. And so the author is trying to answer the question for his audience the captives who have lost everything and have been brought to this foreign land, what happened? What went wrong? And is there any hope? Most of us can relate to that question. When we look at our country, we may wonder, where is justice in light of the continued evil we see in our schools? in our neighborhoods, in our cities? Is there any hope? We might ask this when we look at our own lives. You know, some of us, we might have reached a certain age in our lives where we feel somewhat settled, but we look back at our younger selves and we wonder, what happened to all of my ambitions and dreams? And where do I go from here? You know, if you're a student, uh, in middle or high school, you might have started the school year with your own hopes and dreams. You know, this will be the year when things will be different with your friends, with your studies, with relationships. But now we're almost at the end of the school year, and uh, maybe it hasn't lived up to your expectations, or it's been really hard. What I want to show you from today's passage is that as the author of Kings asks this question, where is hope? We have an answer. 
And that hope does not rest in Elijah or Elisha. It doesn't rest in the strength of the kings of Israel, but it rests in our king, King Jesus. So let's consider these questions today as we read Kings. First, what happened that got us in this mess? How have we tried to fix things? And finally, where is our hope? So let's try and understand what's going on in this passage that was just read, because the order of events is a little bit tricky. So if you look at your passage, uh, verses 14 to 21 tell the story of how Elisha died and uh, its aftermath, okay? And then in verses 22 to 24, we read about Hazael, the king of Syria, But this is actually something that happens before Elisha's death. It's a summary of what happened in the beginning of chapter 13. Then in verse 25, we have a summary of events that takes place before and after Elisha's death. So the order is a little confusing here, but please stay with me. Now these summaries are really important because summary statements in the Bible often interpret the events that came earlier. So to give an example, in the book of Judges, you might get a lot of scenes, horrific scenes of war, evil, and sin, and then the summary statement that says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? So that statement interprets what came earlier. These summary statements at the end of our passage today They help us answer that first question. What happened? What happened to Israel? What got them in this mess? What caused them to lose their land and end up in exile? So look at verse 22, uh, where the author says, Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Uh, We read about this king, Jehoahaz, earlier in the beginning of chapter 13, and I'll read that for you. Uh, So at the beginning of chapter 13, it says, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. These verses tell us that the king of Syria oppressed Israel because Jehoahaz was an evil king. Specifically, it says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Now that one phrase right there, that sentence, that's something that's repeated again and again throughout 1 and 2 Kings. I'll give you just a few examples. 1 Kings 16, verse 26 King Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. 
For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord. 1 Kings 16, 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And if, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Later, 2 Kings 14, 23, Jeroboam began to reign in Samaria, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Those are just a few examples. The list goes on and on and on and on. It becomes the drumbeat of the book. The author is trying to drive home the point that the reason why we're in this mess is because the kings failed to keep the law. It was the king's job to lead the people to righteousness, but it says that the king made Israel to sin. Whatever the king does, the people follow. I started by saying that there's a theological message uh, in the book, in these books of history. Kings in particular emphasizes how the rulers of Israel and Judah failed to follow God's commandments found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 17, lists out qualifications for the kings of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 18, I'll summarize for you what it says. In Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king shall read the law all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the author of Kings, sitting in exile, far from the land of Israel, having lost everything, is telling us the kings didn't do this. They failed to follow the law of God. Even when we see some kings later, like Jehu, or earlier in chapter 10, they followed God in some ways, but then we read that Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord with all his heart. So this is the author's answer to the question, what happened? The answer, we failed. We could not keep the law with our whole hearts. So where then will Israel turn in their distress? For most of the narrative that we've read and studied the past few months, the people have looked to the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. They've looked to them as sources of hope as sources of God's power and wisdom. So now let's look at this second question. How have we tried to fix this problem? By looking at verses 14 to 21. We haven't seen Elisha uh, in the book of Kings since chapter 9, and a lot has happened since then that we haven't covered. There are stories of betrayal, there's war, there are military coups. It's actually really exciting, so I encourage you to go back and read it. And then we get to this chapter where Elisha suddenly re-enters the stage and we're left to wonder, is this the deliverer we need? Is this the one who will turn the fortunes of Israel? 
But no. Elisha, we find, is now sick with a terminal illness. Elisha is not immune to the fallenness of the world, no matter how much the Lord is with him. Even though God used Elisha to literally raise the dead, he himself is about to die. And see what Joash, the evil king, does here. He runs to Elisha because Elisha is nearing his end, and he weeps, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Because Joash knows what Elisha's death means. He knows that losing Elisha means losing one of Israel's most powerful instruments. Elisha was the prophet of God. He was the one that was used to bring life. He was the one that was used by God to speak truth to evil and to give insight to the kings. But here, he's nearing his end. So the king is distressed. Because though the king himself had turned away from God, he could at least use Elisha to access God's power. What final word does Elisha offer to the king here? He offers the king a sign. He tells the king, shoot an arrow eastward out the window, which is the Lord's arrow of victory over Syria, our enemy. And this sign, it's both reassuring but also terrifying. It's reassuring because Joash, the king, now knows he will have victory, but it's terrifying because Elisha is ill and about to die. What's going to happen when he's gone? Elisha offers a second sign in verse 18. He tells the king to take those same arrows and to strike the ground. But the king only strikes the ground three times. And then Elisha gets angry, and he says, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria completely. But now you'll only strike down Syria three times. What's going on here? Is Elisha saying that the fate of Israel depended on the number of times the king struck the ground with these arrows? That seems so arbitrary, especially since his instructions weren't clear. Right? If the king knew that that was how it worked, surely he would have struck the ground ten times or he would have kept striking. But what's important to see here is that these prophetic signs are not ways for Elisha or the king to twist the arm of God. Rather, they reveal what was already true of Joash's heart. He was an evil king, and his half-hearted response of only striking three times shows his lack of complete devotion to the Lord. And so the Lord will grant him three victories, but he will not completely defeat Syria. And then we read in verse 20 that Elisha died and he was buried. And then there's this curious scene. There are a lot of curious scenes in this book um, where a man is being buried beside Elisha. And because the Moabites are invading, you know, they don't know what to do, so they just throw the body into the grave of Elisha. And then what happens? The dead body touches the bones of Elisha, and then it comes back to life. It's a miracle. Elisha, even dead, is bringing life. And we might think that this scene offers us hope 
in the midst of death because even though Elisha's dead, he's still bringing life. But I don't think that's what this scene teaches us. Because while Elisha is indeed a source of life uh, by God's spirit, his body is in the grave. Elisha's bones in the grave are a vivid picture of the hope of Israel, dead in the ground. Elisha, the great prophet, is gone, and no one is coming after him. There is no successor to Elisha who will continue his ministry. In fact, through the rest of 2 Kings, the prophets withdraw from the stage. There are a few isolated mentions of some here and there, but by and large, there's no prophetic ministry. The summary statements that come after Elisha's death emphasize the point that evil continues in Israel after Elisha is gone. It continues as a pattern through the rest of 2 Kings. The kings, like Joash, sought the power of Elijah and Elisha because they believed they were the instruments of God to grant them victory. But they failed to see that the problem was not a lack of power, but the problem was that they failed to follow the ways of the Lord with their whole heart. So as Elisha passes from the scene, we're left asking, who will be the deliverer for Israel? Who will be the king that Israel needs? The king that the whole world needs. The king that we need. Because if God's faithfulness to us rests on our righteousness, our ability to keep the law, we have no hope. We are like the Israelites, looking for the bones of Elisha, only to remember that they are in the grave beyond reach. In the rest of Kings, as each new king is introduced, you know, we're left wondering as we keep reading, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this king will act differently. And there are some kings like Hezekiah and Josiah who do right before the Lord, but by then it's too late. And the kings who come after them again turn away from God. So what does the author of Kings do? And this is the final question. Where is our hope? The author of Kings knows that the kings of Israel failed to keep the law in Deuteronomy. He knows that Elisha is now gone. So read what he says in verse 23. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. There are a few things to see in this passage. First, he says that the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. He's using the covenant name of God. This is the name that God shared with Moses in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The author of Kings looks beyond the failure of Israel to the very core of who God is. Compassionate, 
gracious. Not only that, but he reaches back farther than the giving of the law by Moses to a more ancient promise. He goes all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham to say, no, our failure to keep the law doesn't nullify God's promise to us. God has not cast us from his presence despite our lawlessness because of his covenant. And this is the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 3, 17, where Paul says that the law, which came 430 years after, doesn't set aside the covenant established by God with Abraham. Our failure to keep the law doesn't nullify God's grace. If you're here and you feel cast aside by God, Hear the prophetic words of this book. God has not cast you from his presence until now. And God will return you to him because your relationship with him is not grounded on how well you do, on how good you are at keeping God's law, but it's grounded on his grace and compassion, on who God is and because of the promise he made to Abraham. And so the author of Kings hopes and longs for God to bring them out of this mess they've gotten themselves in. He longs for God to fulfill his covenant. But he had no idea how God would do that. He saw that the kings had failed. So would God send another? But could another king possibly do what so many had failed to do? What the author of Kings, sitting in exile, could not see, we now see. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including the author of Kings. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Hundreds of years after Elisha died and his bones were laid in the grave, a man came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And as he entered the city, many spread their cloaks on the ground and others spread leafy branches they took from the fields. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. The people of Israel were filled with expectation. Could this be the one, the promised king? Could this be the one who would destroy our enemies and restore the land to us? Could this be the king that we've longed for? Indeed, he was, but not in the way they expected. For this king did not come riding a mighty stallion, nor was he brandishing a sword, nor did he sit on a royal throne. Instead, he came with a band of fishermen riding on a donkey. He was exalted high, but on a cross with the crown of thorns. The people welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. And yet, when they saw that he was not the kind of king they expected, they rejected him a few days later. 
And they would say to him as he hung naked on the cross, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus came as the perfect king, but the people rejected him. But God would not reject his people because even when their lawlessness leads them to reject the very king they need, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and he remembers his promise. Have you felt far from Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're struggling because you haven't felt his presence. Or maybe you're struggling with the truths of scripture. Is the gospel true? I don't see it. Maybe you're dealing with anger against God and you're in your heart, you've shut him out or you've turned against him. God is compassionate and gracious, friends, and he will turn to you in love because of Jesus. The book of Deuteronomy says a lot about what kings need to do. The kings in the book of Kings fail to follow the instructions for a righteous king. Jesus came not only to do all that they failed to do, but also to fulfill what Deuteronomy said would happen after the exile. So in Deuteronomy 30, God promises And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The problem in the book of Kings was that their hearts were sick with sin. Though they tried, the kings and the people could not obey the law. But the Lord remembers his promise And to make that promise a reality, he pours out the punishment that the people deserve on King Jesus. And he makes a way for them to follow in the steps of this king by circumcising their hearts so they can now joyfully fulfill the law. And this is true for all of you here who have placed your faith in this king. So on this Palm Sunday... This week, let us search our hearts and ask, where is our hope? In the midst of our failures, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the broken world around us, who do we look to as our king? Jesus is the king we need. When every leader fails you, he's the king you need. When spiritual leaders fail you, when your country's leaders fail you, he will never fail you. When it looks like all hope is lost, when it looks like evil has the last say, King Jesus says, no, I've defeated sin and death. Trust in me. Look to me. So let's go to him. Let's go to him now and worship him. Let us sing praise to him as our king, exalted on the cross, covered in the shame we deserve, wounded for our transgressions, dying that we might have life. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, King Jesus, thank you that you are the king we need. Lord, in our lawlessness, Lord, you, because of your compassion and grace, perfectly fulfilled the law. And even when we rejected you as our king, Lord, you remembered your promise and you turned toward us. Would you turn toward us now, Lord, for those of us struggling here, those of us who are doing well, turn towards us, remind us that you are our king. May we make you king over our lives, every part of our lives. May we make you king in our hearts, Lord, no part of our hearts exempt from your rule and your reign. Lord, show us how good you are. Be with us now, Lord, as we sing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.